Father in heaven, Father, may that uh, truth, may that not only wash over us of your love, it never fails, it never gives up, it will never run out on us. May that not just wash over it, may it sink into our hearts and minds. May you, by your spirit, by, as only you can do supernaturally, uh, penetrate our hearts with that love today. And I pray that as that happens, Father, that you would give us the courage to step out where our feet will fail and step out to a place of faith today um, with wherever we're at. We'll be willing to trust you into the realm where our feet would fail. Father, there's so much potential in this morning. There's so much hope in this morning. There's so much riding on this morning. I pray you give me your words. Give me your passion for your words. And I pray you will give every person here, you will stir them to have a wide open heart and mind, stir them to receive and to respond. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys can have a seat. Imagine something with me for just a couple of moments. Imagine that this morning, that the reality is that every single person sitting here this morning, by the end of the hour, can walk away with $1 billion. And by the time the hour, and I'm not talking a million, that's not nearly enough, but just imagine by the time the service is done, if you wanted, you could walk away with $1 billion. And imagine that it's my job to tell you how to get the billion dollars. And not only is it my job to tell you how to get the, the billion dollars this hour, but actually if you, if you grasp what I tell you, the instructions I give you, you could take the same instructions to anyone you care about beyond the hour, and you could give them the instructions, and they could get a billion dollars as well. If that were true, I would be filled with so much excitement, and I would feel so much gravity in this, partly because I would love for you to have a billion dollars, but partly because if I don't do this well and you miss the billion, you would find where I live, rotten eggs and everything might come. So, so I would feel not only the excitement, I'd feel the gravity of it. And if there were a billion dollars at stake for you and for everyone you cared about, you would listen more intently than you've ever listened in your life. And even you, even you who don't own a pen or a pencil, you would steal one from someone to write down the instructions. Wouldn't you, for a billion bucks, wouldn't you do that? Start out with a trillion. Start a trillion, okay, a trillion bucks. If it's for a trillion bucks, then. Okay, now, now here's the deal. There's not a billion dollars at stake. There's something much, much bigger than that, something of much more value than that. At stake today, every single person here could walk away with complete forgiveness of all sins by God forgiveness by God, could walk away with an intimate relationship with God, could have a life or begin a life that Jesus says he would bring to the fullest on this earth and would someday have heaven. Something that money simply cannot buy. Every single person here could walk away with that. And it's my job this morning to explain with great clarity how a person can have that. I know I talk with a lot of you. There's some confusion among us about, about how we find that life, how we have that life. I've had enough discussions to think I just need to teach and, and give great clarity. So I have this huge excitement. I've had all week. If, if I couldn't convey this with great clarity, there's so much potential for every single person here. And if I convey with great clarity and you already have this life, you could take what I convey and you could convey it to anyone that you care about. And so there's, there's much at stake in it, and there's so much hope in it. And so what I would ask of you is, is listen like you've never listened before, and take notes like you've never taken notes before. 
Let me give you a quick summary that we're going to build off of. Uh, the, this is the easy answer, but it needs a lot, of, a lot of clarity to it. The easy answer, the truth is this, is if someone finds forgiveness, relationship with God, this fullest life now in, fine, in heaven uh, through belief in Jesus or faith in Jesus or trust in Jesus. That simple bottom line, that's how someone finds it, is through belief in Jesus or faith in him or trust in him. And, and those are the English words that we use. The New Testament was written originally in Greek, in the Greek language. And there's one single word that we translate to all three of those. There's one single word, it's the word pistio. It's a Greek word, pistio. And when translators see that word, they'll translate it sometimes to believe in, sometimes they'll say to have faith in, sometimes they'll say to trust in. But it's always the same word, pistio. Give you an example. John 3.16, maybe the most familiar passage on the planet. Jesus says, for God loved the world so much that he gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. That's it, pistuo. Everyone who believes in or has this pistuo, this belief in him. Romans 3.22, same word pistuo translated differently. We're made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true of everyone who believes, no matter who we are. Uh, and faith, the word is pistuo again, by having faith in Jesus. One more. John 12, 46, Jesus says, I've come as a light to shine in this dark world so that all who put their trust in me will no longer remain in the dark. Again, it's the same word, it's pistuo, all who put their trust in me. So bottom line, but there's going to be a, there's a lot of confusion around the implications of this. Bottom line is we have all this by, by believing in or placing our faith in, having trust in Jesus. But what does it mean when the Bible says to believe in or have faith in or trust in? We use the terms fairly loosely uh, these days. And uh, so I want to spend some time and kind of flesh some of those out. For example, I could say with all honesty, I believe in the Constitution of the United States of America. I believe in it. Now, I've only read small parts of it. I don't know what most of it says, but I think it's probably good. And, and so I believe that it's big and it's good and it's distant and it has almost nothing to do with my life. It sets these broad parameters of my life. I live within them. That's all the effect it has on me. It's big, it's good, it's distant. I believe in it. Is that what it means to believe in Jesus when the Bible says that? He's big, he's good, he's distant. Is that all it means? Or I could say, um, <laughs> this is a confession, but many of you wouldn't admit it, but you could confess the same thing. Uh, back a while back, I had, I had faith in the Houston Texans season. <laughs> I had faith in them. Now, I never went to a single game. I watched parts of several games on TV uh, but other than some TV time and some conversation time, it didn't affect any of the rest of my life. And in fact, when I found my faith was sadly misplaced, I didn't shed a single tear, but I had faith in them. Is that what it means to have faith in Jesus? Have these high expectations of him? It doesn't affect my life a lot. I do the church stuff. I spend time in church, have high expectations. But the truth is, if he ever lets me down, if I ever find my faith was misplaced i really wouldn't shed a tear because he didn't matter much anyway i had faith in the texans is that what it means to have faith in jesus or i can say with all honesty i trust the city council of the community where marie and i live i trust the city council i don't know any of them the truth is they i don't know that they even affect my life 
but I trust them, and I would trust them as long as they don't do something that messes up my life. And if they do something that up my life, I won't trust them anymore. But I trust them. Is that what it means to trust in Jesus? We don't really know him. Maybe he has some general effects on our life, but we trust him. But if he ever messes with our life, we will dispose of the trust. Is that what it means? This is what I would say. If we're going to understand what the Bible means when it says again and again this word pistuo, or belief, or faith, or trust, we need to let the Bible interpret for us what it means. We need to let God interpret for us through the Bible what he means in that. Let the Bible interpret itself. It's the same with any author. There's a famous classic title, A Tale of Two Cities, by Charles Dickens. How many of you had to read that once upon a time? I know you were forced to. I was forced to read it. There's this famous opening line, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. What does that mean? It sounds like an oxymoron. How can it be the best of times, worst of times? You and I, we could read the opening sentence. We could close the book and guess what the author meant. We could read the rest of A Tale of Two Cities, and the author tells us. It becomes very, very clear what it means. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. So we're going to do that with, with God's word when God says the way to have this life, this new life, now and forever, is to have belief, faith, or trust in Jesus. Uh, we're going to look at, at how, how God defines that throughout the rest of Scripture. And there's this clue in Scripture that, that we don't catch because we're in a different era and we're reading all of this in English translated. But if we were in the first or second century, we lived in the Roman Empire, we lived in their time when all the main writings were done in Greek. And if we were reading for the first time, if we were reading the New Testament, we would be struck by the words used around pistio, around belief, faith, and trust. Because the word we would find is, it would say every time, every time it would say that, that we would need to believe in Jesus have faith in Jesus or trust in Jesus. And we would recognize in the first and second century in Rome and Greek writings, no one wrote that way. They, they would say, believe Joe. Trust Joe. Just believe Joe. But all of a sudden, they'd read the New Testament. It wouldn't say, believe Jesus. It would say, believe in Jesus. It wouldn't just say, trust Jesus. It would say, trust in Jesus. It's like God saying, hey, red flag. Pay attention. You may not know what I mean by this. Pay attention. Pay attention. Dana Aronson is one of our lead pastors, and he teaches with some frequency here. And uh, he actually, he's learned a foreign language to teach Texas to us, but he's from New York City. A lot of you know that. And they have a different dialect of English up there that we can't understand, but he's adapted to us. But every now and then, very intensely, very strategically, he will throw a word in we don't expect. We don't even know what he means. How many of you remember a Sunday? He threw in the word capiche. Yeah, we're all sitting there thinking, we're on the edge of our seat. Tell us what that means. And he does it strategically to grab our attention and then make a point with us. That's what God was doing here. He didn't just say what they would normally say, trust Bill, trust Jesus. He said, trust in Jesus. Believe in Jesus. Place your faith in Jesus. And so we're going to walk through, and this is where... There is so much at stake for you, and maybe you already have all this, if not for you, for someone you know. We're going to walk through several scriptures, more than I usually do. And I'm going to do it because I don't want you to walk away and say, what I heard was just Rick Baldwin's opinion. I want you to walk away and say, we read what God says in the Bible again and again and again. 
And I want you to take notes of what these scriptures are, because if you have someone that you really care about and they don't yet have this new life with God, then you can go to them and say, don't just trust me. Let me show you. Let me show you. And so you got to hang with me because this is what God says. This isn't what I say. We're going to read what God says. Several passages. The first one is, is Matthew 7, 20 and 21. Jesus would say, yes, just as you can identify a tree by its fruit, so you can identify a person by their actions. Not everyone who calls out to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Only those who actually do the will of my Father in heaven will enter. You would think he would say, only those who actually place their faith in me or maybe the Father in heaven. He doesn't say that. He says, only those who actually do the will of my Father. And I'll drive this home with some scripture in a few moments. But what he's saying is, he's saying that the kind of, the definition of faith and belief and trust is, it's the level, it's the depth of faith that the, the simple outcome will be obedience. It, it's the level of faith that just simply what comes out of that, just the natural outflow of that, is obedience. One who would do the will of my Father. In John eight thirty one, Jesus said to the people who believed in him, and he's using the term somewhat loosely, as you're about to see. Jesus said to the people who believed in him, you're truly my disciples if you remain faithful to my teachings. He's saying, maybe you think you believe, maybe you think you're my disciple, but the test is, is, is if you have the kind of faith, belief, trust that, that I talk about, that the Bible talks about, then the outflow is just going to be, you'll be faithful to my teachings. I mean, that's just the natural outflow outpouring is that will happen. Another one, John 10, 27, 28. It says, my sheep listen to my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Th- that's a term that suggests he's leading, they're following, Correct. Okay, he's leading, he's giving direction, they're following his direction, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, they'll never perish, no one can snatch them away from me. He says, follow me. In fact, one of the most frequent commands Jesus gives in the Bible is follow me. Two dozen times he says, follow me. It's this this command of leadership, isn't it? And he's spelling out for us what it really looks like. If we have biblical faith, if we believe in him that deeply in who he is, the outcome is we follow him. I'll give you another one, Matthew 16, 24, 26. And Jesus said to his disciples, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must turn from your selfish ways, take up your cross, and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you'll lose it. If you give up your life for my sake, you'll save it. And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul? Is anything worth more than your soul? He's saying this is what it looks like to have faith. He's saying... Turn from your selfish, you will turn from your selfish ways. You'll take up your cross, which meant I'll die to my agenda, and you'll follow me. He's defining that's what it looks like to have biblical faith, belief, and trust. And as I read, to give up my selfish ways, take up my cross, give up my agenda, the term that's hit me again and again is, is the term of surrender. And wrapped up in faith and belief is this, is this reality of it means we would surrender to the leadership of Jesus in our lives. Let me give you uh, one more that Jesus gives. John 3.36, the first line, this is a two-sentence verse, first line, anyone who believes in God's Son has eternal life. Clear, right? He's about, second sentence, he's about to flip that and give the opposite. 
So I would expect he would say, anyone who doesn't believe in God's Son doesn't have eternal life. But he doesn't say that. What he says is, anyone who doesn't obey the Son will never experience eternal life but remains under God's angry judgment. He's almost equating belief with obedience, isn't he? He's all, I say almost because it's, it's not, he's not exactly, he's almost equating it. What he's doing, and I'll point this out in a few moments, what he's doing is saying if, if you believe, the obedience will happen. It'll just come. It'll just come. I'll give you two more uh, biblical references that weren't Jesus speaking, and I could give you a hundred I could give you a hundred, but we don't have time, and I'm not sure what your attention span is on this. So I'm going to give you two more. Can you hang in for two more? Okay. Okay, Hebrews 3, 18 and 19. And, and the preface is, this is talking about some people that disobeyed God again and again and again. Not just once, but repeatedly. And to whom was God speaking when he took an oath that they would never enter his rest? Wasn't it the people who disobeyed him? Saying the ones that disobeyed again and again and again. They'll never enter his rest. But then it goes on to say, so we see that because of their, not disobedience, because of their unbelief, they'll not be able to enter his rest. Again, the linkage is so tight. His, his unbelief leads to just not obeying. Belief leads to obeying. One final one, Titus 1, 15 and 16. Everything is pure to those whose hearts are pure, but nothing is pure to those who are corrupt and unbelieving because their minds and consciences are corrupted. Such people claim they know God, but they deny him by the way they live. They deny there's any relationship with God, not because of what they say, but by how they live. It's, it's the outcome, it's the actions. Now, this is, this is so important. Don't walk away thinking that God is saying that to have relationship with him now and forever, you have to have faith and you have to obey. That is not what the Bible says. The Bible says again and again, I'll give you one such verse, it says again and again, it is faith. But it is a faith that, that is of such depth that it will result. It will just simply naturally result in obedience. It's like if I take my car and I park it on a hill, which must mean the freeway because it's the only hill that we have around here on the freeway, and I put it in neutral and take the parking brake off, it will go downhill, right? I just put it in neutral, took the parking brake off. It will, that's, that's what God saw. If, if you have this kind of faith, but it's only faith. In Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, God saved you by his grace when you believed. Okay? When you believed or had faith, when you trusted. And you can't take credit for this. It's a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we've done. So none of us can boast about it. Salvation is not faith and obedience. It's not faith and works. It's faith. It's just faith. But it's a definition of faith that means we will believe so deeply that the natural outcome would be we will obey. We will obey. James chapter 2 pulls this together. He says, What good is it, dear brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith but don't show it by your actions? Can that kind of faith, I would say, can that definition of faith save anyone? So you see, faith by itself isn't enough, not that kind of faith. Unless it produces good deeds, it's dead and useless. He's saying the kind of faith that's biblical, it will just, it will produce us following Jesus. It will produce our life being shaped by him. It will produce this surrender to Jesus' leadership. That's just the outcome of it. We, we have relationship with God now and forever by faith. 
But it's a faith that results in our behavior being changed. Let me give you an example of, of how faith works. Um, I have always done our own taxes uh, because when you don't have much money, taxes are pretty simple to do. So I've always done them. But there was a shift in our lives, in my life. I'd worked in the oil business, and then I began to work as a pastor. And I thought there might be some tax implications I should know about, so I'd do it right. And so I went to this person who was an expert in taxes for pastors. And I had deep faith in their ability. And I just said to them, show me how to do this. And they showed me, and I did just what they said. And I went to bed, and I slept well that night. And for now, 17 or 18 years, I've been doing it the same way. And I've slept well every night. The IRS has never come for me. The the truth is, simply because I had so much faith that they knew what they were talking about. I just did what they said. Of course. What else would I do? I'd be stupid, wouldn't I? To have this much faith and then go do something different when they know so much more than I do. Or suppose, and this is an imaginary thing, um, suppose that there were a weather forecaster that I had complete trust in. Complete. I know that's a, you know, not reality, uh, but suppose that I had... um, complete, absolute faith that they always could forecast the weather well. Complete trust, complete belief. And suppose this afternoon, this forecaster forecasts that this Tuesday, there'll be a level five hurricane that blows through Houston. Okay, if I have that kind of faith, where do you think Marie and I will be come Tuesday? And we'll be about 300 miles from here. That's what faith does. Biblical faith. That's what biblical faith does. If I truly believe this gal or this guy doesn't make a mistake with the weather, I'm not going to sit here. And I understand. I understand this is February. Hurricanes don't come in February. But if I believed this person, we're boarding the house up. Well, I don't know how to board the house. We won't do that. So we'll just pack the bags and we'll drive out of town then. We'll act on it. This is, this is the level of belief, of faith, of trust, the level of, of the Greek pistuo that God's describing to us in all of this. And, and so this is what it comes down to. This is what biblical faith is. It is. It's completely trusting Jesus as Lord and Savior. It's completely trusting Jesus as Lord and Savior, which describes who He is. He's Lord and Savior. Um, another way of saying that is completely trusting Jesus to lead and forgive us. Completely trust Him to lead my life and to forgive the sins in my life. And the term that I have found in recent years makes the most sense to us here in this FCC culture is this, is is to trust Jesus to lead means that I will surrender leadership of my life to him. Biblical faith means not only will I trust him to forgive my sins, and, and honestly, most of us can do that pretty easily. We can trust him to forgive our sins. The the one we trip over is is surrendering to his leadership in our lives. And the passages, the verses I've read speak to doing this, the essential of this again and again and again, the kind of faith, faith in him, not just as forgiver, but as leader, the kind of faith that is leader over us. What I've described, it is the the traditional understanding of the church through the ages. 
in the book of Acts where the first church was, was, begun, was begun, it was very clear to them that the problem we all have is because of our sin. It's very clear that Jesus is the only Savior we can have. It's very clear they're invited to confess their sins for forgiveness. It's very clear, but it only references Jesus as Savior three times in the entire book of Acts, and yet it's a major important deal. Only three times, but it mentions Jesus as Lord 92 times. Why do you think that's the case? Because it was easy to say, please forgive my sins, I trust you. It was harder to say, wait a minute, wait a minute. Do I really want to give control of my life to you? So 92 times he's Lord, 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 Lord. 92 times he's Lord. And then as, as the uh, New Testament church unfolds, there's this leader of the church named Clement that if you read church history, famous leader around the uh, 100 A.D., beginning 2nd century. This is his understanding. Augustine, 400 A.D., this is his understanding. Martin Luther, centuries after that. John Calvin, this is his understanding. John Wesley, this is his understanding. Charles Whitfield, Charles Hayden Spurgeon, A.W. Tozer, again and again and again. And the only divergence of that has appeared within the last century, especially the last 50 years. And it's not been out of ill intent, but in the last 50 years, there's been this suggestion that can't be supported by the Bible, this suggestion that all you have to do is have him as Savior. You just ask him to forgive your sins. He will gladly do that. You're saved. You get heaven with him. You don't have to ask him to be Lord of your life. You don't have to submit to his lordship. You can if you want. You can do it down the road if you want. You never have to. But the scriptures we've looked at, and there are a hundred more, simply can't support that. And it's crucial that you and I understand what God says it means to have faith in Jesus, to believe in Jesus, to trust in Jesus. It means to say, would you lead my life and forgive my sins? It means saying, I'm going to surrender the leadership of my life to you. I will do that. How do you know? How do you know? Why would you do it? Why would you even take that step? Why would you surrender control of your life to anyone? And this is why. It is a massive upgrade of the leadership of your life. Jesus has infinite wisdom, which you don't have. Jesus has infinite knowledge, which you don't have. He has infinite knowledge of you. He knows you better than you know yourself. He has infinite knowledge of, of the future and all that's to come, which you do not know, I do not know. He has this infinite power, which you don't have, power to shape and direct circumstances of your life that you don't have. He is perfectly good, which you and I are not, and he loves you with this infinite love, which is far more than you love yourself. It is this massive leadership gain I mean, that's why in this room there's so many that have said, here's my life. It is this massive leadership gain. When you see a leadership gain like that, you take it, you jump. I mean, you walk where your feet no longer touch the ground anymore in faith. You step out with that kind of gain. There was a man uh, named Theo Halema. He was a professional man in the Soviet Union back before the Soviet Union collapsed. He was behind the Iron Curtain. And because of his skill set, they would often begin to take him on these teams that would go beyond the Iron Curtain, and he would go into the Western world, and he would be exposed to what the Western world was like. And he had particular exposure to the United States of America, and he began to look at his life in the Soviet Union or the Iron Curtain and the authority he was under there. 
And he began to think, if I could just shift myself under the much preferred authority of the United States of America, I would do it. And the more he learned and the more he saw, he developed this, this profound faith and belief that, that the, the governing control of the United States of America was better than the governing control of the Soviet Union. And how do I know is this deep, profound faith? Because my wife, Marie, would, would actually meet Theo Halema. And he would tell the story of there was this day that they were in Europe, they were in Western Europe, and he had planned it for a long time, and there was this day that he believed so strongly that this was a leadership upgrade to go to America. He risked his life to defect that day. And he knew if he was caught, he would probably be killed or live out the rest of his life in Siberia. He knew if he was successful, he would likely never see his parents and brothers and sisters again. But he had such faith and belief the leadership of America would be so much better than the leadership of the Iron Curtain. And he made the leap, and he went to the embassy, and he was accepted, and he found his way here and became a professor at the University of Houston. And Marie got to know him, and I got to know him, and you, you would call his phone number. If he didn't answer, the opening part of his message was, it's a great day to be an American. He never forgot. And he would risk his life for the upgrade from the Soviet Union to the United States of America. Folks, the upgrade from my leadership to Jesus, your leadership to Jesus, is infinite in comparison. Why would someone not make the change? Why would someone not shift and say, my faith is in you? I surrender this life to you. How do you know if you've, if you've done that? How do you know if, if you're living out this life surrendered to Jesus? If you, how do you know if you have this biblical faith? Most everyone I know, they can recognize, maybe not the day, but at least the time of life, they recognize there was a willful shift of leadership in their life. They recognize that for some period of time, maybe a long time, my case for a long time, they recognize that they actually... I mean, they made sure they called the shots of their own life. And there was a shift. There was a time that came that that shifted, and they said, Jesus, I deeply want you to call the shots. And they began to live that way, not perfectly by any means, but they began to live that way. There's, there's an awareness that there was a point in time that, that there was a shift, and my deepest desire be, uh, became, and still is today, you would say, still is today, I want to follow him. I may fail again and again. I want to follow him. There's a shift. And then I would say that people who have, have a biblical faith surrendered to the leadership of Jesus because 2 Corinthians 5.17 promises and delivers, it says when you begin to trust him, you'll begin a brand new life. It says the old life is dead. And the people that I know who, have, who they, they have this biblical faith in Jesus they can look at their life, and their life isn't what it used to be. And they don't do, their actions are now fresh and different, and their attitudes are fresh and different. There's this change that happens. And I'm not suggesting that, that a person who surrenders to Jesus never sins. Even the Apostle Paul, he would write in Romans 7, he would say, why are there days that I, I do the very thing I don't want to do? And it's against Jesus. He says, why are there days that I don't do the thing I want to do that's for Jesus? Why are there days I sin? It's, it's not to suggest that once we make that step that we're, we follow perfectly, we don't. But we know, we know at the core of our being what we long for, what we hope for is following him. 
we long for is following him. We know that. Some of you are probably processing and thinking, and you can't recognize in your life that there's, that your life, you yearn for him to guide. You look for him to guide. You follow his guidance. But you're thinking, you're thinking back to a time, a special time in your life in childhood when there was this childhood prayer and this childhood conversion, and then maybe there was a childhood baptism that happened. And you're wondering, how does that fit? What is that, what, what role does that play? And, and I will tell you, because that was my story as well. Um, I was eight years old. I was raised in church, great Christian family, raised in a great church. The tradition of the church was such, I was sitting in the crowd one day. The tradition there was, when I, I felt God stirring me that day, I really felt him. The tradition was, I walked down an aisle. And I authentically, as an eight-year-old, I, I prayed this prayer, and I was soon baptized afterwards. And it was a good thing. If you're a parent, that's what you hope to have happen. But, but for every child, they are only adopting, at that point, the faith of their parents, or the faith of a teacher. There, I was adopting my parents' faith, and for every child, at some stage, usually in the teen years, a child either begins to own that faith or they let it slip away. That's just the way it works. Um, it, see, in, in, as a child, it's just this borrowed faith. At some point along the way, and for, in my case, my story was when I became a teenager, I just let that slip away because I, it was subconscious, but I wanted to run my life. I wanted to be captain of my ship. And I continued in church without fail. I continued in Sunday school or small group without fail. I read the Bible fairly often. And I even considered many of the commands and I adopted, I chose to adopt many of the moral commands because I chose to adopt them. I, I would read them, I would hear them, and I would say, I think this is one I'll adopt. But, I, I, but clearly, I was captain and there was a day became clear to me that, that that's not the kind of faith God's talking about. Because I, I met some people fresh, that their desire was to do whatever Jesus said. And I realized I was handpicking. I, I picked a lot of them, and I followed them pretty good. I was handpicking. And there was a day for me I said, I surrender. What I long for is you to lead my life, and I will do all I can to follow your leadership. I surrender. And so I would say to you, if you're sitting here and, and, and all you have to skate on right now is a memory, then you, you got to realize biblically you're on really thin ice because the question is, where's your faith now? Where's your trust now? Where's your belief now? Is the longing of your heart to follow Jesus no matter what? Or not? Or not? It's one or the other. Some of you, some of you in this crowd, you've been thinking, been processing, and you know with such clarity that you are, already, you are living this life of faith, belief, trust that the Bible talks about. And you know your life is surrendered, and you probably even thought back when it began. Some of you know the day, but most all of you would know about the time of life where that began for you. And, and your response to this ought to be such thanksgiving to God that you have this by His grace and His goodness. And your response should just be celebrate and thank him, thank him, thank him. But a lot of you, 
a lot of you are sitting here either being very aware that you've never shifted the leadership of your life to Jesus. You've never shifted kingdoms. You've never shifted under your authority to his authority. Or there are many of you sitting here, and it seems kind of gray. You're not sure. You're just not sure. And this is what Jesus would say to you because he said this when he walked the planet. He would say to you, first, count the cost. Count the cost because he would say, if you decide to give me leadership, this will alter the rest of your life, and it will alter your eternity. Count the cost. It means you'll give me leadership of your life. But then he would say, why wouldn't you? He would say, I have all of the wisdom in existence. I have this infinite wisdom I will bring to your life. I have infinite knowledge of you and tomorrow and everything. I'll bring that to leadership of your life. I have infinite power. I'll bring that to play in your life. I have infinite pure goodness. I'll bring that to play in leadership of your life. And I love you more than you could ever love yourself. And I'll bring that love to play in your life. And he would say, why wouldn't you? It is such a leadership upgrade. What kind of fool, he would say, what kind of fool could we be? I think we could lead our life better than he could lead our life. And so this is where I want to go. I want to ask you to ponder, and then I want to ask you now to bow and to pray. And I want to do the prayer a little bit different than I usually do. So, so bow your heads, if you will, close your eyes. And I want to open on behalf of those who have never trusted Jesus to lead and forgive their lives, never surrendered to the leadership of Jesus or those that are vague, that just aren't sure if they ever have, I want to open by, in just a moment, I'm going to pray a prayer that I would suggest, line by line, if you want this, if you mean this, that you would quietly in your heart pray to God. I give you a a line of suggestion, if this is what you want, that you would would pray your, your heart to God. And then I have a little more of the prayer to follow as well. Let's pray. If, if this is for you, this is what I would ask you to pray as well. Lord, I am a sinner who desperately needs your forgiveness and leadership. Today, I'm placing my full faith, my full belief, my full trust in you, Jesus. I'm trusting in you to forgive all my sins. I'm trusting in you to lead my life. I surrender leadership of my life to you, Jesus. Thank you for hearing and accepting my prayer. Thank you for the gift of a new life that will never end. And now, with your eyes closed, I want some sense of who I'm about to pray for now. If you've prayed that prayer, would you just for a couple seconds raise your hand so I know who I'm praying for? Because something big has happened. There's been a huge life shift. Uh, New life has begun for you. Eternity has been changed for you. The angels in heaven are singing and dancing over the shift in your life. So I want to pray for you. Father, for all of these in this room who have raised their hand because they prayed to you and they said from this day forward my faith, my belief, my trust is in you to lead 
and forgive. Father, uh, may they feel the warmth of your smile. May they understand at the core of their being there is a fundamental shift of who they are, of their life, of their future in this life and their future ahead. May May they recognize that, Father, deeply. May they celebrate that, Father. Father, for the ones here that have long been following, whether a day or decades, Father, we, we thank you for this new life. We thank you for this, for the forgiveness and the level of leadership you bring to us that we've experienced. We thank you for that. And Father, there's some in this room that have not yet crossed the line to say, I place my faith in your son Jesus. And Father, my prayer for them is you would stir them to keep coming to church and keep examining and exploring and asking and wrestling because you say for anyone who authentically seeks you that they will find you in your son Jesus. They will find you. So I pray they'll continue to come. Father, thank you for the explosion of the party in heaven that's begun because of all those in this room now, all those that are in the room first service that have begun a brand new life. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.